we'll uh, continue our continue our catechism study or short, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism this afternoon. We're continuing to look at the questions that have to do with the covenant of life. As I told you, we'd be doing that for a little while. Um, I remind you again that the covenant of life is the covenant that God made with the whole human race when he created us. It's also called the covenant of works. And of course, at that time, there was only one man and one woman when God first made us, Adam and Eve. So the covenant was made with them, but also with their posterity, the, the people that would come from them. And this covenant is called the covenant of life because God promised life to Adam and Eve, eternal life, if they continued to serve God as their God, obeying him and submitting to his authority with perfect obedience. At that time, they were able, unlike us, they were able to obey God and even inclined to obey his moral law of love. There was one exception, though. They were also able, they were given the ability to reject God if they so chose. In other words, they had the ability to fall or to apostatize, to defect from him and to declare their independence from him, which would be, of course, a horrendous thing for them to do, but which, as we have seen already in previous studies, they did do. They fell by taking the one thing that God had withheld from them, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had withheld this from them as a test of their fidelity, a test of their ongoing respect for him as God, their respect for his authority. By eating it, they sinned against him as their God and declared that they were not going to serve him as God. They did this even though God told them that in the day they did it, they would surely die. They did die. Right then and there, they became dead in their trespasses and sins. It's described in Ephesians 2. They became subject at that time to physical death and then to eternal death under God's judgment as those that had rejected him as their God. Now, we've been slowly working our way through all of this. And I hope that you've been following along. If not, of course, know that you can catch up on some of the messages that you may have missed as they are recorded on our on the internet for you. It's helpful with the catechism studies. So one of the main things about the catechism is that we learn how everything fits together. Of course, I try to review and make those connections to you as much as I can. But um, I, I hope that you've also been working on memorizing the catechism, because that helps quite a lot as well. It's important to know the basic outline of the scripture, what the scripture teaches, and catechisms give us that. And the basic tenets of our faith are, are drawn together in a concise way that we can remember. So let's review the questions that we've already done that pertain to the covenant of life. The first one that introduces it is question 12. And I'll read the question and then uh, we'll say the answer together. Question 12. What special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created? When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience 
forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. You see that perfect obedience is what is called for and that the only thing that is forbidden is the fruit of one tree. Question 13 goes on to tell us how Adam and Eve used their freedom to reject God as their God. Question 13. Did our first parents continue in the estate wherein they were created? Our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. And then question 14 explains what sin is at its roots, that it's a setting aside of God's law. What, question 14, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And then last week, we did question 15, which speaks of the particular sin that Adam and Eve committed. Question 15, what was the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created? The sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created was their eating the forbidden fruit. This shows us how Adam and Eve, our first parents, went from being the servants of God to being cut off from God and so became the servants of sin, of self, and the devil. It was by eating the fruit of that one tree that God had given them as a test of their loyalty or their disloyalty to him. It's how they defected from him. But did you know that in doing this, Adam in particular represented the entire human race? Did you know that God had arranged it, that he was our representative? When he rejected God, we all rejected God. When he sinned against God, the whole human race sinned against God. We fell when he fell because Adam was our official representative. That's what we're looking at today. That's what question 16 is about. This is a question in uh, question 16. Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? The covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. So do you see what this is saying? That when Adam ate the forbidden fruit, it was as if we had all done it. Every person sinned in him and fell with him. Only Christ is accepted because he was born of a virgin and conceived by the Holy Spirit, born without sin. But all the rest of us became guilty before God. And our relationship with God as God was severed. We were brought into a state of rebellion and lostness by what Adam did. That's a hard thing to accept. And there are many people who oppose this doctrine. It's interesting. I looked it up on uh, 
on Google and some of the first things about looking up original sin where people saying that, oh, this is bad. This is not true. This is not a good thing. That sort of thing. So it's it offends. And uh, we're going to be looking at that some today. We need to look, though, not at what we want the scripture to say, but we need to look at what it actually says. And I want you to look at Romans 5 with me where this doctrine is presented to us of original sin. It's Romans 5, verse 12 through 21. And we'll have this for our scripture reading. And you can see this for yourself. We're going to be working our way through this passage in Romans. Remember that it's the word of God. So it needs to be received, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin. For until until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. And the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, Much more, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there we'll end the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. It stands for all ages. Look at what Peter says here about Adam's sin and take heed. First, he tells us that sin entered the world by Adam. He emphasizes very strongly that it was all through one individual, one man, that sin entered the world. Sin was not in the world when God first made us. It entered in later. We were righteous and upright. The only sin that we were capable of committing was the great sin of rejecting God as our God because you couldn't commit another sin without first doing that. We had to break fellowship with him and cast off his authority before we could break other commandments. Sin entered by Adam because Adam was the one that defected by eating the forbidden fruit. As we saw last week, by doing this, Adam went from living a commandment-oriented life, doing the will of God in subjection to God, to living according to, you may remember from 1 John, 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In other words, now he would live according to what he wanted rather than obeying what God commands and living according to God's wisdom. He would live by his own wisdom, what he thought was best, and not according to God's word. And look, Romans 5.12 goes on to say that not only sin entered by this one man, but death also entered the world by this one man. Death was also not present. Death came as a result of sin. It says, by one man, sin entered the world, and that resulted in something else, and death through sin. So they were connected together. So it's not just sin that came, but consequences of sin, death, punishment. Just as there was no sin in the world when God made it, so there was no death in the world when God made it. God had promised eternal life to Adam and Eve if they simply continued in his covenant of life. But as soon as sin came, death came. Reading thus far, we might, though, suppose that this is just telling us that Adam was the first person that sinned and the first person, therefore, that was sentenced to death, but that every other person would be brought, that was brought into the world would then have his own opportunity. In other words, that then he would be tested and if he continued, he would continue in eternal life and if he rebelled, then he would die like Adam did if he, if he sinned. So that, that's something that we might think would be the case. But we're told something quite different here in the Word of God. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, tells us that Adam's sin was everybody's sin. And he tells us that when Adam died, we all died. First, he talks about death. In verse 12, he says that death spread to every person from Adam. The word spread, literally that word means that it passed through. The words used of a person going on a journey and passing through various places. It's like a disease, something we're talking about all the time these days, and how it spreads Someone comes with a disease and it spreads into the area where, like in in an assembly or something like that, and and the the disease spreads or in a nursing home, you know, that that sort of thing. And it reaches, in this case, every person, it says. So when Paul says death spread to all men, it is to say that it came to every one of us so that we all died with Adam. We all fell under the judgment of God and were condemned to spiritual, physical, and eternal death. Spiritual death means that we were cut off from communion with God to live in that way I was talking about before, with God not being our God, a life of a, sin, a self-life of sin, dead in our trespasses and sins, not walking in God's ways. Physical death means that we were all doomed to return to the dust from which we were made. Our bodies right then began to break down and rot. And to eventually, when in the grave, they come to complete corruption. 
And eternal death means that we were sentenced to eternal punishment. The place of outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Death in all three forms spread to all men. It's a dreadful thing. And look at the reason that death spread to all. It's stated at the end of verse 12. Because all sinned. We all died because we all sinned. You say, well, I wasn't there. I didn't, I didn't sin that way. The word because could be translated here in as much. In as much as all sinned. Paul is not just saying that we all ended up sinning too. He's saying that we all sinned when Adam sinned. When he did this, we all sinned. Adam spoke for us. When he broke away from God, we all broke away from God. You can think of it like a tree that's attached to the earth. And Adam is the trunk of the tree. And all of his children that come up from him are the branches of the tree. So you have a family tree. You know, here's Adam and he's connected to the earth. He was connected to God for life, just like a tree is connected to the ground for life. For, for life. And then a tree comes up and it has all its branches that are potentially going to grow on it, the whole human race. What happens if you cut that tree off from life? If you cut that tree off from God, from the earth, in this case, in the illustration, all the branches are also cut off. When the trunk dies, when it's separated and severed from the source, so are all the branches. The whole human race then broke away from God when Adam broke away from God. He was our spokesperson, our representative. You could also compare this to illustrate it with a nation going to war. In a nation, you have people who are official ambassadors. And they speak for us. They represent us in in the nation that we're in. They make decisions on behalf of the entire nation. And if they declare war or they enter into war with another nation, whether we like it or not, we're at war. When they do this, our nation is at war. And as long as you remain part of that nation, you are at war. Only there's one difference. When it comes to the fall, we're all in agreement with Adam as rebels against God until and unless God transforms us. So none of us are saying, oh, they shouldn't have gone to war. We're, we're all in there with Adam. We're willing accomplices with Adam. Once he rebelled, you see, we all became rebellious at our core by nature. We all became lawless and detached from God. And so did all the, so did all of the rest of us. As Psalm 51.4 says, we are conceived in sin. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not saying that his mother fornicated, committed a sinful act when she conceived him. He's saying that he had sin in him. He talks about it as part of the core of who he is and his nature in that psalm. So this is true of every single person. We're already in the condition of alienation from God. The tree is cut off 
of lawlessness, worldliness, and apostasy were severed from him when we were born. That's what Paul is declaring when he says that we all died with Adam because we all sinned. People like to imagine a, a spark of divinity within us or, or something like that, but there's, there's, no, there's nothing of the kind. We're, we're cut off until God comes to us to restore us and bring life to us. This is not an easy thing to accept. It's especially hard for us. I mean, people that live in Canada today because of a particular mindset that we have that is not the mindset that people have always had. We live in a day when people like to think of themselves as separate from others rather than as thinking of ourselves as in community with others, as intertwined. Now, it's interesting because lately, you know, more people are talking about community and that sort of thing. And I think that's probably in some ways a good thing for our society, though it's often done in a wrong kind of way. But overall, we live in a day when personal freedom is valued more than unity and identity with a group. And we don't like to take, especially we don't like to take responsibility for other people. Because this is so, we don't do very well in community. The tighter the community is, the more trouble we have. Like the tightest community you have would be a husband and a wife, and then with they and their children, and then you know it goes from there. But uh, families are frequently broken up because unity is not understood, it's not valued, it's not seen as important. Few people think about how their actions affect their family or the other people that they're in a society with. Like if a Christian sins, they go out and uh, say they get, you know, drunk all the time, that sort of thing. They don't think about that they're sinning against a body of Christians that they're together with. They just think, oh, it's what I did. We don't, we don't identify that way with other people or when someone does something like that in their family. They don't think about that I'm harming my family. I'm sinning against my family. Likewise, when people are at work, they don't very often think about the reputation of the company that they're working for and want to try to enhance that reputation. They just think about their personal experience there, how well they're treated, whether they get their paycheck, uh, whether they're paid fairly, that, that maybe they should be paid more. It's all their own interests and career goals and not an interest in the community that they're a part of. So there's a reason, there is a reason that we have a bad taste in our mouth about the way God has arranged the world, though. How did we get kind of in this anti-community way? Well, I think that we want independence because we've seen so much abuse when there was more of a sense of a community spirit that way. You see, in order to have unity, you have to have submission to authority. If you have a whole group of people at work and they're going to march together, someone has to direct them so that they march. Like if you have a, a symphony, the conductor has to lead everyone. They don't all just play and happen to come out together. They have to conform in that way. They have to conform to those that are in authority. They have to sacrifice personal interests for the sake of unity. If you're playing in a symphony and one fellow playing the clarinet wants to go faster than everybody else, it's not going to come out very well. 
But too often we have seen those in authority take advantage of their position and start living for their own interests instead of the good of the whole. So the ones in charge say, I'm in charge. I'm going to control these people for for what I want instead of leading them for the good of the whole and for the glory of God. Leadership is can be very wicked and selfish. And when they do this, you see, they give us a bad taste for this whole idea. I don't want to be controlled. I don't want to be part of a group. I don't care about these other people. I just want to do what I want to do and protect myself because no one else is going to do it. That's the idea. So it makes individuals within the group start to rebel. But it's hard to escape from corporate life, even when we want to, and from authority. We, we have a hard time being able to get away from it. What we have seen over and over in our modern world are revolutions, which is people overthrowing the government because they find it oppressive. They don't want to be controlled anymore. They find that they're being selfish and that sort of thing. But what it always happens, revolutions to give people freedom from tyranny, there's a bitter irony because they always have new leaders. It seems almost invariably they have new leaders emerge to lead the revolution, and those new leaders end up being even worse than the old regime. You have Lenin and Stalin and Hitler, and you know the list goes on. You have this in the workplace too. People entered into unions to counter authority at work, and then the union leader starts to oppress them and raise their union dues and gets fat on everybody else's check. And uh, it says, you have to depend on me. And they make a law that you have to be in the union and, and things like that. Because we can't have uh, uh, the, the corporate thing that we want if we're not. So, so you end up with another authority. And then you have quarrels about pay and all, all sorts of things. And in the home, a young girl leaves home to escape an angry father. And she ends up serving a, a pimp in some big city in worse slavery than she ever had at home. Now she gets beaten and everything else. Or a young man leaves home and ends up in a gang, once again with tyrannical authority that beats him worse than his drunken father used to beat him. But even when there is some success in escaping from authority, which sometimes there is, after a while, things start to go wrong. Things start to get chaotic. So that people want authority again. They start to cry out for it. That's what happened in Israel. They didn't exactly have a big revolution. But um, you see they had been in Egypt under cruel bondage. And so they wanted freedom. And God delivered them and brought them out. And of course God was there to lead them. They had a hard time submitting to Moses and to God. Because they had a bad taste of authority. They wanted freedom. But as the decades went by, their freedom got more and more intolerable. In the time of the judges, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And it got very ugly. I mean, you had people like, you know, that Micah guy that had had his uh, idol that he set up. And then these other guys that were other Israelites, none of them were supposed to be worshiping idols. And they came through and they stole his idol, took it by force. And there were too many of them, so he couldn't stop them. People, people were just doing, doing crazy things. After a century or so, they were crying out for a king. 
to rule them. And they didn't even care when Samuel told them, hey, if you get a king, he's going to put your sons and daughters to forced labor and he's going to tax you. They said, we don't care. We don't care. Give us a king. Give us a king like the other nations. They were tired of the chaos and tired of the disorder. They said, we need a man that can bring us together and can take us to war and all these kind of things. So you see this kind of thing. It's, uh, It's very lonely to be free in this wrong kind of way of freedom. Because you're on your own and not part of a community. You're part of a family. You're you're not part of a family or with other comrades in the workplace working together to share a common goal. You're just over there toiling away in your own little independence. Nobody is committed to anybody else. And it gets really lonely. Even if you know a lot of people, there's a real commitment. There's no real commitment where, where people make sacrifices for each other and for the work that they're doing together to achieve a common goal. Everyone says, oh, my hours are up. I'm going home. I don't care if we meet a deadline or not. What do I care about that? I got my paycheck. So there's a switching back and forth that occurs over the centuries from unity and form to freedom and individualism. And the truth is is that these two poles are opposed to each other And it's only in the Lord that they are brought together. In a way, it's like the Trinity. You have the one and the many. You have the three and the one. And one is three and three is one. It's a a marvelous thing. And all of society and even nature itself is that way. The philosophers tried to figure out how did everything start? Was Was there some big unifying principle that everything came out of? Or was it random chaos and all these things that were floating around and they they just randomly fell together? That's kind of more the way that a lot of people seem to look at it today. But uh, then they move back and say, oh no, there was something controlling this. And then they go back the other way. With God, you have freedom and unity that are brought together. You have form and freedom. You have unity and you have individualism. Our day is definitely one, though, I would say, where... Uh, freedom is valued over form and unity. It makes us recoil then at the very idea that we should all be held accountable and that we should be charged with Adam's sin. Our question is, what does Adam have to do with me? Well, he's your, he's your first father. <laughs> Thing is, it's not that we want to serve God anyway. We're not interested in serving God, but we still don't like it that we're tied up with him. We think it's really quite wrong of God to punish us all for what Adam did. We find it hard to accept the way that God has ordered things, and that makes us want to deny that we bear responsibility for what Adam did. The problem is, this is how God made the world. Children are very much affected by what their parents do. That's just the way it is. And by what others do. Way more then we often want to be affected. We're forced to submit to people in order to survive, even though we don't always want to submit to them. When you boil it all down, we just don't like the way God made the world very much. But we need to accept what God has done and learn to and learn even to appreciate it. 
Now, to help us in that struggle, I would like to take a moment to show you how God has arranged the world. I actually preached on this not long ago when I preached on marriage out of Mark, that how beautiful it is meant to be. To summarize, God has arranged us as one big family with unity and diversity. We're not all clones. We're not all the same. And yet we were made to to live and function together with common interests and common purposes and helping each other, working together. He created us this way. Instead of making a million individuals, a million individuals, as he did with angels, he made one man, one woman. He formed, and he even formed the woman out of the man so that she was in that way of him. And then he made them so that they would bring forth children that would be of them rather than separate individual creations. So we all come from Adam We're cut out of the same cloth. We're all related. And yet, we're all quite unique. He made us this way after his own image. In ways that elude our understanding. We get all tangled up if we try to go too far with explaining about the Trinity. But in ways that elude our understanding, God is one God, yet three persons. And these three persons live in beautiful unity giving and receiving and living coordinately together for the good of one another, yet there's a oneness that is completely indivisible. It's, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing. There's a structure with authority where the Son always obeys the Father and the Father always leads the Son in self-giving love. And the Holy Spirit submits to the Father and the Son and He is sent by them. And it's His delight to serve them, and they lead him, the Father and the Son lead the Spirit, in perfect love. So there's this this harmony and this this coordination, this unity. And even in the very nature of God, that's where we get beyond our our ability to explain how there's the Son and the Spirit and there's the Father and yet one God. If we were not fallen, we would live in this beautiful way in our families in our workplaces, our churches, in our nations. Instead of leaders taking advantage of their position in oppressing and squeezing, they would learn self-giving love, to lead with self-giving love, thinking of what is truly best for those under their care and for the glory of God as they serve. Instead of subordinates balking and slacking off and rebelling, They would be pouring themselves into pleasing their superiors and coordinating under their leadership. There would be mutual appreciation and delight for each other's gifts, graces, and roles. There would be kindness and consideration and contributions to each other's work. This is what heaven will be like when we're freed from sin. It will be so wonderful and it will be so beautiful. There will be a perfect combination of personal expression and freedom along with unity and living for the good of the whole. We are to strive for this as Christians with God's help now as much as we can, part of our living in the world. Sin still plagues us, of course. We have struggle of our own sin as well as that of others, even after we've come to Christ. 
but we're to be patient and endeavor to live in unity and peace in our family, in our church, in our workplaces, in our city, in our nation. Hopefully, that will help you to see the good in the way that God has structured society rather than recoiling against it and saying, oh, I don't like that structure. Paul also recognizes that we will want to deny this teaching that we all sinned in Adam and fell with him. So he goes to great lengths to make this teaching clear, to make it plain, to set it forth for us is that which is true. In verse 13, he's so keen on doing this that he interrupts himself to explain it to us. He was starting to make a comparison that he picks up later in verse 18 between Adam and Christ. But after telling us that we all sinned and fell with Adam, and then he's getting ready to make the point, he realizes, okay, I just said we all sinned and fell with Adam. I'd better explain that. I'd better better clarify that. People are going to have a hard time with that. You can see in the New King James Version how verse 13 begins with an open parenthesis that uh, doesn't close until the end of verse 17. Then in verse 18, Paul picks up the comparison again. Like I mentioned that he began in verse 12 and completes the comparison that time. And we'll look at that a little bit later. But first, let's look at what is this parenthetical explanation that Paul gives of this difficult doctrine that when Adam sinned and fell, we all fell with him. Paul explains why we got punished for what Adam did. Because, of course, in our regular living, that wouldn't be right if somebody else did something and I, I get punished for it too. Well, I didn't do that. You know, kids at school or something like that, they, they, they'd be offended by that. So Paul explains, why do we get punished for what Adam did? I mean, Adam got punished too. He asserts that even though there was no law like the law that Adam transgressed, we still sinned. Verse 13, he says, For until the law, you know, he's talking about the law of Moses there, not, not the moral law, of course. For until the law, the law of Moses, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Okay, there's no law. Somebody can't come and say, hey, you broke the law. Because there, there isn't a law. What he means is that there was no formal law. There was, no, there was the moral law, of course, but there was not a list of forbidden things like trees that you couldn't eat from like Adam had, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was, there was no covenant to break. Adam had already broken the covenant. But even though there was nothing like that, people still sinned. They still broke moral laws because they had been ruined by the fall. This shows that even though they did not themselves reject God the way Adam did, they did not personally eat the fruit, they still had Adam's rebellion in them because of what he did. Otherwise, they would not have been able to break the moral law. Before they could do that, they would themselves have to reject God as their God the way Adam did. Though through Adam, they were God-rejectors by nature, Breaking the law was natural to them. Adam had already rejected God in their stead, so they were God-rejectors. And not only did they sin without personally following themselves, 
See, they didn't need to fall because they were already fallen. They also died even though they themselves did not personally break away from God the way Adam did. Verse 14 says, nevertheless, even though they had not sinned like Adam did, they had not done that. They didn't have a commandment like Adam had. Even Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. They died because they were guilty of the sin that Adam had committed. They were rebels on account of that. They were dead because Adam brought death upon himself and upon the whole human race. As we saw, death spread to all men. It passed upon all men. We all died together in the garden as it was, as it were. The tree was broken off and all the branches that would come from it. Paul does not try to so much explain this to us as he he asserts it. That this is the way it is. Okay, I'm making it clear to you. This is the way it is. And then he moves on to explain something quite wonderful, still in this parenthesis, uh, that while we may not like it that Adam represents us all, Adam is a type of Christ who also represents us all. So if Adam is this tree that was connected to God and is cut off, Christ is a tree that is planted in God and is not cut off. And all the branches that grow out of him or are grafted into him are therefore rooted in God again. So let's look at this. Christ is like Adam in this way of representation, representing us. At the end of verse 14, Paul says that Adam is a type of, of him who is to come. A type. It's a kind of like a, a, a picture of him that represents him. And the comparison is that just as death and sin came to all men by Adam, life and righteousness also came by one man, Jesus Christ. Happily, Jesus stands in the same relationship to his people as Adam did to his posterity. It was given to Christ to act in the behalf of others. The great news is that while the relationship of representation is the same, with Adam and Christ, that relationship of being a, like a tree with them, is the same, the outcome is exactly the opposite. Verses 15 through 17 show the contrast. Verse 15 says that instead of an offense, Christ brought grace. He says, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, okay, the the Adam tree was cut off from God, much more the grace of God and the gift of God by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So in the same way we're cut off by him, we're joined by our union with Christ. He says, even, it, it, even though we didn't do anything, what Christ did is graciously credited to us as if we did what he did for ourselves. Verse 16 shows that what Christ did as our head brought condemnation, but that what Christ 
I'm sorry, I said that wrong. What Adam did as our head brought condemnation, but what Christ did brought justification. Declaration of righteousness. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense by Adam resulted in condemnation to everyone, but the free gift which came from many offenses, all the offenses that we committed that were, were Jesus died for, resulted in justification, making us righteous. Justification means that we are declared to be righteous before God. Not because we are righteous, but because Christ is righteous and paid for our sin. It's a wonderful free gift, free gift that we did nothing to deserve. Now, there's a difference because we were naturally in Adam is his posterity. But with Christ, we're graciously added. We're graciously joined to him. Verse 17 goes on to explain that whereas death came through Adam's offense, life comes through Jesus Christ. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, okay, he's cut off, death is reigning now, that tree is cut off and all the branches, death is reigning through one man's offense, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, what Jesus did, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So again, judgment to us because of what Adam did, righteousness to us because of what Christ did. We got blamed for what Adam did, but we also get credit for what Christ did. Now, of course, that's only if we're in Christ. All who are in Christ is what it's talking about. All who are in Adam, who is that? Everyone's naturally in Adam. We all come from him. So we all have that, whether we want it or not. But then coming to Christ, when union is established with him, we're grafted into the tree of Christ. Then we have all the privileges of justification, blessing, eternal life, and so on. Verse 19 repeats the same thing with different words. It says, For as by one man's disobedience... Many were made sinners. They were constituted sinners. They became... So now we're not just talking about death itself, but we're talking about them being rebels. Okay? They were made sinners. So also, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Jesus' obedience is the obedience of all those who are graciously joined to him. So you see that you would do well to accept the way God has arranged things with first Adam and then Christ representing us. If you had been given your own chance in the garden, you have no reason to think that you would have done any better than Adam. Adam, in a way, was a composite man that was going to be divided into the whole human race. Now, of course, I don't mean that in a weird liberal way, literal way, a weird literal way, but we were all going to come from him and to be brought forth from his loins, as it were, made after his likeness. That's the way God did things. You have arms and legs, for example, because you come from Adam and he had arms and legs. You have a fallen sinful nature also because you got that from Adam too. But the 
By the grace of God, though, Christ came to be the head of the people that were to be redeemed by him. So you have, by nature, joined to Adam, but now by the grace of God, Christ came to be the head of the people that were to be redeemed by him. God was under no obligation to send him, none at all. We are justly condemned in Adam. He's under no obligation to include us into Christ. He does that freely of his mercy, his free grace. It's an act of sheer grace. Christ, who is the Son of God, had no natural relation to us. He became our relation by taking our nature to himself and then becoming our kinsman redeemer, as it were, voluntarily. He did that for one reason, that he might represent us in order that he might redeem us. That's why he became flesh. And in his marvelous grace, he lived for us and he died for us. And what he did is counted for us. It counted for us. We did not do a thing, but it was all credited to us just as if we were the ones who had lived that righteous, godly life that he lived. And then just as if we were the ones that had died on the cross for all of those sins that we committed. It's like Christ came and by association with us, he was contaminated and polluted, not personally, but representationally so that he had to bear all of our sins and be punished for them. But at the same time, we were purified and made righteous through our union with him that's credited to us. So I urge you that rather than complaining about the way that God has arranged things with representatives like this, accept it with gladness and give up on saving yourself. If if it's not arranged this way, there's no place for you to go. There's no way that you can be saved by Christ. Come to Christ and let him do the saving. That's where your choice comes in. Will you remain in Adam? Or will you come to Christ that you might be forgiven and have eternal life? The call goes out. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, the Lord says. God is pleased to count what Christ did for you as if you had done it. When you come to Christ to save you, verse 21 will be true of you. Don't you want this to be true? That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you want sin to reign? Do you want to stay in Adam, who is cut off, who's in sin, who's condemned? Or do you want to come over to Christ and receive forgiveness of sins, righteousness, eternal life, be able to live with God and walk with God anew as a new creation in Him? Yes, we all die in Adam, but in Christ we who believe are all made alive. You're in Adam by nature, whether you like it or not, but you're called to come to Christ in faith. And if you do, you will be saved. Please stand and let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, how can we thank you enough for what you have done for us through Jesus Christ? 
We praise you and we thank you that you sent him into the world, that he might represent us the same way that Adam represented us, but with a very different result. For Adam, many were made sinners, many died, many were cut off, many were condemned through one man's disobedience, the many were died and were condemned. But we thank you that through one man's obedience, that there were many that were made righteous, that through Christ there are many that receive forgiveness of sin and have condemnation lifted from their head. We thank you, O Lord, for Jesus Christ and for what he has accomplished for us, for the great sacrifice that he made. He shows us a true community spirit, that he comes not for himself, but for the good of the whole community, pouring out his life for us in order that we might live. We pray, O oh Lord, that now that we, we who have come to him, that now that we have been redeemed and are established in him, that we would live in the body life that we have been given. Father, that we ourselves would cherish our brothers and sisters the way Christ has cherished us, that we would want to help them along, that we would want to do whatever we can for them. For we have a Savior who has done so much for all of us. We pray that we would live by his example. The whole purpose of that community that he has established is that it would glorify God. That that new community would live the way Jesus lives. That we would live in that love. That we would love you and that we would love our neighbor. That together we would help each other to walk in love. To serve you. To call on your name. To worship you. Things we can't do all by ourselves. We pray, Lord, that in doing that, that you would be glorified and that Jesus would be glorified as our leader and the one who coordinates us and keeps us together and keeps us in step and yet gives us the the individual expression and freedom that, that he does, that we each have our callings, we each have our place, we have our roles, we have male and female, we have young and old, we have infirm and, and healthy, we have so many varieties in this world. We, we have those that do labor and those that, that have um, administrative jobs and those that minister and those that, um, that, that build. And Father, there's so many things that, that we could say. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you have made the world. And we pray that we would come to delight in, in living together with, with people around us and truly being a part of, of bringing blessing to to others that are part of the human family and especially those that are the body of Christ. Lord, help us to walk together in peace. We thank you, Lord, that there is such forgiveness of sin for us in Christ and and, and we praise you, Lord, for the, the hope that it gives to us. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Our closing song is 14C. Receive now the blessing of our gracious Lord. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God, alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen.